0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's ASF Weekly Science Podcast. And this week, I am especially pleased and proud to profile a paper that was a collaboration across clinicians, self advocates, parents, caregivers, researchers, and other scientists to think about what females need. So, as we all know, as I've talked about on this podcast, females with autism are often overlooked. They are often underdiagnosed, and therefore their needs are often underrecognized. And so this group came together uh, a couple years ago, uh, I think even during the pandemic or the height of the pandemic, to talk about what this group of people could do to uniquely address in a paper that could be shared with the community the needs of autistic females at birth specifically, and we'll talk about that, um, to make sure that their needs are being met. So I want to introduce you to some of the authors. It was very, very difficult for us to all get on group calls when we were writing the paper. It's even more difficult during the holidays for us to all meet over a podcast recording. But I'd like to introduce you to at least some of the authors. Um, We represent a very diverse group um, and I'm very proud to have worked with all of them. So we're doing this over Zoom. So I'm going to just call people out
1: and let them introduce themselves. And I'm gonna start with Christine. Yes. me. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for putting this together, Alicia. I think this is an amazing opportunity. So I'm Christine Wu Nordahl. I'm actually one of the uh, few non-clinicians, I think, on this group. So I'm trained as a neuroscientist and much of my work focuses on understanding the neurobiology of autism and sex differences in the brain. And I have just learned so much from participating in this group. I think the paper is excellent and I'm excited to join this conversation today.
2: Thank you. Dylan? Hi, um, my name is uh, Dylan and I have uh, lived with high functioning autism since I was um, born. And I am an aspiring uh, self-advocate I was introduced to this group um, by a really good friend of mine who is part of this group as well. And it, it was a really like a big opportunity um, to really like talk about the perspectives like uh, that we have about females with autism and how it can be more acknowledged. And it gives me like an opportunity um, to give out my own perspectives of how I've uh, lived with uh, autism and how I cope with it and uh, to hopefully bring a little bit like uh, more awareness to uh, others who are also born on the spectrum and how they can be able to cope with it and adapt with it as well.
3: Thank you. Uh, Maricela? Hello, everyone. I'm Maricela Huerta, I'm a clinical psychologist and I'm a director at Felicity House, a social club for women with autism in New York City. In my work as a clinical psychologist, Um, I provided uh, first-time adult evaluations uh, and worked with English and Spanish-speaking families. Uh, And at Felicity House, I helped direct uh, program development and membership experiences using an environmentally-focused approach uh, to create accessible social experiences, uh, which surprisingly isn't something that's often done in autism groups and programs. Um, so it's it's great work to do, and it's, it's wonderful to be able to offer that to the autistic women in New York City.
0: Yeah, maybe you'd like to tell us a little bit more about Felicity House, because I'm familiar with it, but I don't know who else is, and I think everyone should be.
3: Yeah, so Felicity House is designed to be a social club for autistic women, uh, autistic adult women in New York City. Uh, it's a program Uh, designed to provide social opportunities to women-identified adults who have a diagnosis of autism. And the focus really is on creating opportunities for social connections and having access to opportunities to meet with others, be around others, and uh, celebrate their identity. And as some participants put it, get out of the house and do something social. Uh, We're meant to be as an an add-on program for uh, participants who are ready and looking for uh, social experiences. Um, The content and um, activity menu is all participant nominated uh, and staff are really there to do uh, again, to quote community members, the executive functioning work uh, involved in putting together these experiences—you um, know—supporting community members uh, in terms of event reminders and um, debriefing and providing uh, all the helpful information uh, that one needs when you're experiencing a new social experience. Thank you, Alicia, for including me in this work group. It's really great to be here and talk about this important topic.
0: Dr. Soul. Well,
3: yes. Hi. <laughs>
0: Hi, everyone.
4: I'm Kristen Soule. I am a pediatrician um, and I specialize in development and behavior at the University of Missouri. And as a clinician, it's a huge passion of mine to be able to serve the entire, both the entire spectrum as well as all of the age ranges. And so, as many of my patients have grown older, um, I have really become very fascinated and and particularly vested in trying to think about how to serve them well as they go into adulthood, but particularly for for women. Um, And so females assigned at birth um, and really trying to help us think about what are the issues What are the issues that are facing them? What are the things that we can be doing when they're um, small children um, to really help them advance and grow and thrive? And so it's been amazing to be part of this group and to have that lens um, of being a clinician who serves uh, now the majority of the age ranges um, or at least up until the the early thirties. And definitely I'm happy to be part of it. Thank you. Morena
5: Hi everyone. Um, my name is Miranda Kaye. I'm really glad to be part of this group um as well. Um, I I wanted to say, Dylan, you're not an aspiring self-advocate. You're an advocate. <laughs> you're not aspiring for anything. You have you inspire a lot of us already with the, what you do. Um Thank and you. so <laughs> you're welcome. And so I was actually um brought into this group um to, to as um, to, to help provide perspective because I wear I have a kind of like a, a range of identities so I am um, on the autism spectrum myself, I was late diagnosed in adulthood. Um, I am also the mother of um you know two my two youngest children are um, are diagnosed as autistic when they were very young when they were toddlers, um, and then I have other children with uh, various disabilities including you know, one with intellectual disability and so I um so it's like it's my I'm a mom I'm a self-advocate. Advocate. I've worked in, um, in special education. I have a master's degree in um, developmental disabilities and special education, and I also do a lot of qualitative research. So I kind of feel like it's like mm-hmm. personal, professional, like all of that. And um, my um, one area that's really important to me um, is addressing um, kind of like um, underrepresentation or underrepresented groups, um, like intersectionality and marginalizations, particularly within this population, as people have
6: mentioned.
0: Thank you. I'm going to go on to Dr. Goldman next. Sylvie.
6: Hello. Good morning. Thank you, Alicia, for putting this together. This is really a great opportunity to, in a way, reflect on our work together. So my name is Sylvie Goldman. I'm a developmental child neuropsychologist. I lead the autism Diagnostic Clinic in uh, the Division of child Neurology at Columbia University. And that's where I focus on early, early diagnosis of autism, around two years old, maybe 18 months, uh, with a very special interest on diagnosis of girls. Um, This came from my very early interest in sex and gender difference from early work uh, in Belgium. So I think culturally... Um, I do have to say that becoming a late bilingual, not a late autistic woman, but a late bilingual, really showed me the difficulty to fit in and try to understand what others are saying and expressing myself in a way that reflects my really my deep thoughts and I still struggle, I have to say being yeah. a bilingual, it's still difficult, and I think I can feel what could be difficult for others uh, and my patient. Um, And I I obviously, you know, relate to girls that do have difficulty to fit in when it doesn't work the way they want and try to mask and I mask probably my accent sometime or other things like that. So I think this issue of missing the girls, giving them the wrong diagnosis, delaying delaying their, their services or just delaying the acknowledgement of something is different was for me extraordinary. Difficult and important to do. And then maybe later on, we'll discuss how this group actually was, you know, gracefully uh, answering those concerns. But thank you so much for everyone to be part of this.
0: Thank you. And last but certainly not least was our leader, um, the leader of the uh, paper, and certainly the gentle and patient leader in our discussions, Dr. Meng Chuan Lai.
7: Thank you, Alicia. Thank you, everyone. I think this is a co-led effort for all of us, and especially Alicia and Sylvie put all of us together. So um, thank you all very much. My name is Manchun Lai. I'm a child and youth psychiatrist and a scientist now at the uh, Center for Addiction and Mental Health uh, in Toronto. I'm also uh, uh, with the Department of Psychiatry and Psychology in the University of Toronto as an academic. So uh, I share a lot of similar feelings as Sylvie that uh, I had some international exposures, uh, working with uh, families and uh, young people on the spectrum in Taiwan, doing research in the UK, and was so much inspired by the work with um, autistic women that I had uh, been fortunate enough to work with during my uh, research career. That has really taught me a lot about the life and uh, experiences, and a lot of like uh, like unresolved scientific questions, but also most importantly like unmet clinical needs of the population. And I think um, the journey really has led me to uh, great interest and also passion to understand uh, what's actually going on in people's life. And we know it's not only biology, it's not only culture. It's a you know interplay of many factors and many things. And we have to take those into consideration not only for like research understanding, but also like actual Care and support for improving people's life uh, in in the daily context. So I think that's how I so much appreciate this opp- opportunity and working with all of you. So thank you very much, and looking forward to discussion.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to throw the first question to Sylvie, which was, um, how did this group kind of come together? So what I will do is in the podcast summary, I will post a link to the paper so you can see, you can read it, and then you can also see who all was involved with it. So we don't have to be so vague about people no, who are or aren't on the call,
1: but um,
0: Sylvie, maybe you can talk us through how we kind of came together.
6: Yes, definitely. I'm so happy to be able to do that, actually. So actually, this is the second paper of this group. The group is not exactly the same, but I think it's important to express the, the thing that we started. I started by calling Alicia early in the peak of the the pandemic, being extraordinarily concerned about my work. It was very self in a way serving. And during the discussion, I said, but what are we doing? We can't see these children. We can't stop working. We decided to form such, just a working room. We said, let's, let's talk about this. And so we did that. And we invited a, a few of our colleagues and uh, slowly we decided that this should be published. Those discussions were important. That was the first paper led by uh, Loney's Weigenbaum. And we really published something about what is it about a diagnosis of artists during COVID and after COVID. And we had all kinds of discussion, but I think what I really enjoyed the most is that we were trying to find solutions. We were not complaining and crying about this. We were really trying to say, but what is it that we can change? And what is important in this early diagnosis of artists? This was wonderful, and I think because of the COVID and the lockdown, we felt really probably even happier to meet on a regular basis. It was a very respectful and very warm group. I met lots of colleagues, and we almost became friends, which I thought was amazing. I was not a big Zoom person, but I really realized that seeing those faces was really an excitement for me on that day. And so when we, in April 2021, the paper, that first paper was published, and everyone was starting to um email me and email Alicia and said what's next what's next what do we do next and i said well i'll be happy to continue you know it's i cannot really be the lead definitely but i'm happy to instigate some question and my question is the question of autism in young girls and why are we missing them? What's happening? What are the bias? I had written a paper before, an early paper on this clinician biases and missing these girls and not actually seeing the the phenotype the way we see them in boys. And so I suggested this to Alicia who jumped on the idea right away. And uh, we, we called every co-authors. And obviously, since the previous one was a success, a lot of, a lot of co-authors were really eager and happy to continue. So we, we let a few weeks pass and then we decide, okay, let's meet and discuss these girls with autism. A question. What do we want to do? And obviously, everybody had some questions. Then I think Alicia and I said, but we need also some voice there. We cannot just be experts. We need to hear from the woman. And uh, Alicia knew through her colleagues and her work a few women. So she started contacting them. We had Dylan. We had Morenica, We had some other, actually, colleagues that were able to share their very own experience. We changed completely the the dynamic of that group there were some tension there were some you know great discussion there were uh, argument about what words are we going to use afab or not afab are we using girls women young older what are we saying what kind of um, in a way terminology would be correct and it this was actually very interesting and and quite useful to really spend the time of articulating our thoughts and there were more discussion, I would say even social discussion than necessarily intellectual and scientific points, although we had Christine who reminded us that the brain was actually part of mm-hmm. this, and sex and gender difference starts in the brain but would, but everything was actually happening at the same time, which I thought it was a very dynamic group, a very respectful warm and 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 productive group. Everybody actually pitched in and did their work, and slowly. We say, well, these discussion are really great, but what are we doing with them? And I think it was Meng Chuan who said, "But we can contact a paper and let's try with the top and see if they're interesting in our discussion." And uh, I think he suggested that he would be willing to write in a way uh, to the journal. and And we outline all together, as always, all together. We made a very extensive outline of what this paper would. Would look like with different areas, different question, and and advocacy and research priorities, and so we send this. To the, I mean, I I think Alicia decided to send this to the Lancet, who approved the paper, at least the 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 submission of a project of a paper, and we start working with then some of our better goal, because we knew we had different sections, different tables, and the format came together. And I think we continued these monthly meetings, but with a very specific goal that this would be published. It wasn't just us talking, it would be published, and this would be a participatory research paper, and not a scientific paper, but we would hear the voice of everyone. And uh, we continue working, and then we split in different working groups. Uh, everybody had a little working group and a leader. And then we came back to Alicia with an amazing organizer and brought all these drafts together in the Google Doc and everybody sent comment constantly and and then Meng Chuan took the lead and put this whole thing together. And you know, it's an amazing paper, but I think it's also a reflection of an amazing group more than a paper. It's really the experience to work together remotely and yet in a very, very personal way. So I think that's that's the story of the paper. But uh, you know, maybe other people have other things that I missed.
0: I see some clapping emojis. Does anyone else have anything to add? Well, my next question goes to all all of you, and what we'll do for listeners is um, I'm just gonna put it out there and whoever wants to answer it can raise their hand and then we'll go around. So, what is the value of a clinical recommendation? So, we thought, you know, I, I said at the beginning that we wanted to create something so that other people who may not necessarily work as often with a, a autistic females at birth as, say, Sylvie does, would have something that they could use and and do. What would be the value of a clinical recommendation? Marinica, what in your in your experience, what why a clinical recommendation?
5: And thank you for this question, Alicia, and I'm hoping that um, others will share, um, because I'm really going to kind of be sharing from the personal perspective. I'm thinking about myself, you know, when I was, you know, when we're my daughter was two years old and we're going through the. You know, various different hoops and specialists and this and that and all of the different places that you're going because they don't know what's happening. So it's audiology and genetic testing and it's developmental this and it's that and it's neurology and all of these different places, you know, because people don't really recognize, you know, young girls, and they, particularly, you know, if they're girls of color. And then if there's a, you know, multicultural element, you know, being that my family is West African, so we're bicultural. Um, so there's all of those things. And so I felt like it's important to have clinical recommendations, because when you are if it's your life or your child's life, whatever, you're like, what do I do? You you want to have something concrete. You want to have something that's practical. You want to be able to have the people who are part of your team, you know, be able to say okay well these are some helpful practices these are some things that work these are some promising you know um, strategies or so forth like it's the it's important to have things that are our, our worldview is important things that are philosophical are important they absolutely impact our lives but at the end of the day we need you know something that can be actionable and so that's why i wanted we wanted to kind of shift the paradigm in the way that people think but also what can they do to help families right now? What what can I do to help, um, you know, people, you know, right now? And so that's why we wanted it to be something that people wouldn't just read and say, oh, that's interesting, but read and be able to apply into their work.
0: Thank you for that. Maricela.
3: Thanks, Alicia. I would say, you know, clinical providers are sorely in need of training guidance and resources around autism in general still, and especially about children and adult females. At Felicity House, which is designed to be a social club for autistic women in New York City, we hear directly from autistic women as well as from providers. And we hear from providers, not just in New York City, but from across the United States who contact us, and we hear the need in their frequent contact and in their wide reaching requests for information and resource connections. Um, And it's just striking um, that it isn't just, you know, what you would imagine, the prospective participants, but clinical providers. Um, And in particular, what stands out is that there is a need for resources around wellness and care planning. Um, You know, again, through the work in the program, we see firsthand a lot of the evaluation reports that women receive. And a lot of those recommendations are focused on related but non-autism conditions, Mm. or they list a limited number of resources that are often strictly focused on didactic skill building programs, which, you know, don't get me wrong, can be really helpful to some uh, adults, but it's not what everyone needs. And so, you know, this opportunity to come together and really collaborate and put together something cohesive for both families and providers alike was just so important. Thank you, well said. Dylan?
2: You know, when I was like uh, one years old, um, when my parents sort of like uh, detected something, like they um, took a mean action and took me to a pediatric uh, neurologist. And, you know, they say, um, like undeniably uh, detected it. So. You know, I do feel like uh, the earliest you can get, like, uh, detection uh, from somebody who specializes in autism, um, like, uh, the more you'll be uh, prepared for that. Because um, since then, like, as a child, I actually have volunteered to participate, like, at colleges uh, and hospitals where... Um, I had groups of researchers that study in autism evaluate me and help them to upgrade their research in autism and other developmental disorders. And that's sort of like, uh, you know, not only like uh, upgrade their research, but it also like uh, gave me an opportunity to speak on the behalf of my um, own perspectives.
4: And Kristen? Yeah, so I think the importance of clinical recommendations is, is a huge one because what I've seen from a clinician standpoint is how frankly poorly understood um, assigned female at birth uh, individuals on the spectrum are, are evaluated um, and just the really sheer impact of bias on many levels um, and how that influences how we perceive and how we then either diagnose or or make recommendations that kind of goes to some others' points as well, where we're really having a very narrow window um, of what we know about autism applied to a very broad scale of of young um again, assigned female at birth um uh people on the spectrum. And I think that is a really important piece to what this paper, and I'm really proud of this paper because I feel like it helps clinicians. Be able to see beyond maybe some of those stereotypes or some of those biases in multiple directions, multiple directions, not just related to gender, but also related to culture and, and all the intersectionality pieces that we talk about in the, in the paper. So I'm really thankful for these clinical recommendations. And what I hope it does is push us further into thinking about those practical recommendations for, um, for assigned female at birth um, individuals on the spectrum, because I think we have a lot of work to do, so that we get out of the mindset of kind of cookie cutter recommendations and get further and further into individualized um, and and really precise um, opportunities for people to grow within the the frame of their own neuro, uh, you know, neuro whatever you want to neurodiversity whatever you want to call it. I think it's a really important opportunity. For us to really continue to highlight what clinicians who do this a lot know, but have a hard time, I think, sometimes communicating to clinicians who don't know because of those other very rigid boundaries that seem to be applied uh, in general across the diagnostic spectrum. Um, So anyway, very happy that we did the clinical recommendations, and I think it was a great opportunity for all of us.
0: And Christine, as a non-clinician, what were your <laughs> your you're you're a self-professed
1: non-clinician? I
0: wouldn't call you a non-clinician. But-
1: <laughs> well, I'm an aspiring. Well, I, I like to hang out with clinicians. I'll say that. Um, So I just wanted to bring the perspective that, you know, I thought that it was really important to have these clinical recommendations, because a lot of us work in these very specialized academic centers, we have expertise in these areas, you know, I lead a study called Girls with Autism, Imaging of Neurodevelopment, we have all of these resources to better understand autism, I see you, Alicia, it's called the Gain study.
0: I (laughs) was trying trying to to figure that out.
1: I'd heard of it, (laughs) but I was trying to put it together, yes. Um, but um you know and uh and we have all of these resources but then I got a call from my best friend from college who has a nine and a half year old daughter and she'd had every other diagnosis under the sun. And I said, well, let's talk about this. You know, I I know a little bit about autism um, even though I'm not a clinician. And it was very clear to me that she met all the red flags for autism. I said, how are you living in Manhattan? Your daughter's almost 10 years old and you don't have a diagnosis of autism. And this is when I was thinking we have to get this information out to, the public, to other people, to get all of this information that we know, these groups that we talk about, um, out to people. And and for me, as a non-clinician, I will be giving this paper out to everyone and telling them to give it to their pediatricians, to their educators, to their caretakers, um, because I think it just provides so much critical information that will hopefully improve the lives of many people beyond what, you know, beyond who we are. So that's why I thought this paper was really important.
0: And Marenike, I I wanna give you a chance to add, but I would also love for you to add your own experience from a culturally or racially, ethically diverse person as well as why this is important.
5: Absolutely. Um, but before I do that, I wanted to just back up a little bit because I realized that um, for people who haven't read the paper or who may not be familiar, I wanted to explain the the reference point we have been coming from. I know people have been hearing us say assigned female at birth, women, girls, females. And so I just wanted to kind of share just so that people can understand, um, you know, what, what our paper intended to do and who it's speaking about, because there's a lot of gender diversity in, um, you know. Know, the, the autistic community, and it isn't to exclude anyone in particular, but we were just looking at a particularly, you know, underserved group. And so what we meant, what we, you know, when we're saying this assigned female at birth, we're just talking about what, you know, essentially what anatomical, um, you know, oh. genitalia person was, you know, I guess was assigned, you know, what would, at you know, what people have assumed them to be. So when they were born, a person sees, you know, vulva, you know, labia, and you say this is a girl. Now. that person, you know, 10, 12, 15, 21, 30, 40 years old might not identify as a woman. They might identify as non-binary. They might identify as male. They might identify as, um, you know, metagender or Whatever you know, like it's there, you know. But we're we're talking about a group of people that are kind of raised and initially socialized um, in in what is perceived as you know, quote unquote, being a a girl. Um, And so we're it's inclusive of individuals who might have transitioned in you know in in younger years. But um, we don't want to misgender anyone. So how how a person identifies themselves, we're totally inclusive and it's you know of that. Um, But we just wanted to focus on this population because of the fact that kind of like what was just being shared, you can be in Manhattan and have a 10 year old who has been missed. And that's like not a rare story, sadly, um, because, you know, if you you know, there's jokes in the autistic community that there's like a, you know, kind of like you're going to get diagnosed with um, mm-hmm. social anxiety, depression and OCD or something before you'll get your autism diagnosis or maybe ADHD, um, just all of these different things. And so I wanted to share that. And particularly with me being a, a person of color, I'm, um, I'm I'm a black person. My um, heritage is Europe I'm Cabo Verdeano. My, I was born here in the United States. Um, my parents are immigrants. And in um, our communities and communities of color in general, not just black ones, black and brown, you know, you know, and immigrant communities, I'd say there's a lot of um, there's even less visibility. We're hi- we're even more hidden. People might not notice us our diagnosis or you know might attribute different things to cultural um you know to things about our culture for example in West African culture it's it's typical not to make eye contact so why would a parent of a of a of my in like case mine, why would that be something you would call the doctor about? You wouldn't, <laughs> you know, um or If, you know, or in just even in terms of people looking at things to be a a particular presentation of what they're looking for Mm -hmm. and how that um, others, people who are not, you know, that way. Um, So you don't find resources or services that are relevant to you, you don't have providers that look like you and your family um, that understand um, the goals that you have and the values that you have that use some of the same terminology, even you know that might be relevant to you. And so, for me, um, in particular, um, it, it was it's important for me to um, it's you know to have my child, you know, and myself to look around and not be the only you know, in the room, you know, but often, you know, with there being so many more people assigned male at birth diagnosed earlier. So there's, you know, a huge group of, you know, so it's like autism has been seen as a young white boy's condition and it's not it's a condition and neurology that anyone can have so um, for me it was very important to be able to provide for families to be able to say oh okay this happens to us too well, this this is relevant to us too um and to feel like they were represented um you know for self-advocates you know autistic self-advocates or families whomever to see themselves represented um in um you know in, in me being part of this work
0: Thank you for that. And thank you for also explaining the term AFAB because you're right, it's probably a new term for a lot of people. It was, I'll admit it, for me. So thank you for explaining that. Chuan? Um,
7: yeah, I just want to uh, add on to what uh, everyone just said. I think clinicians tend to look for standardized way and valid ways to help with uh, their clinical work. From diagnosis all the way to intervention and support. But we also know that in you know, humans are living in societies, like K pointed out, there are lots of cultural, social, and uh you know, intersectional factors that can shape a person's experience and behaviors. So on one hand, you know, clinical work is focused on standardization, key measurements, but to do proper clinical work, we need to be aware of what's actually happening around the person, the social factors, the cultural factors, the international factors. I think that's exactly the case why we're having um, you know, we're bringing these lens into the discussion and into the clinical recommendations that you know we do need to seriously consider what gender socialization like looks like and what other factors might look like. Um, differentially for um, uh, based on the assigned sets of the person and how that might have an impact to uh, the, the behavior experiences and to the extent of clinical recognition of, the, uh, of, of, of autism. So I think that's really one of the key messages we're trying to address uh, in this paper.
0: So what we didn't do yet is get into what were some of the clinical recommendations. And I think that they're very nuanced um, and they're also very comprehensive. So I don't think we have time on this podcast to do all that, which is why I'm putting a link in the podcast summary for everyone to read it. But um, what were some of the issues that popped up during our discussion that um, really needed addressing that made it into the into the paper that you kind of like to highlight? And this can go to anyone. I'll start by just mentioning that I feel like it was the physical, just the physical health of women, right? So things like menstruation or going through puberty or um ch- You know, we didn't really talk specifically about we didn't you know, we're not going to college. We didn't get really into any specifics, but just that it was surprising to me how overlooked and how dismissive a lot of doctors can be because they don't understand the intersection between being AFAB and being on the autism spectrum. So I found that to be really surprising. And I'm very glad that we addressed it in the paper.
6: Sylvie yes well i'll i'll talk about my very own practice and i think one of the concern i had was actually to disclose a diagnosis of autism to parents of a very very young girl and and you know, our group was pretty much all in agreement that, yes, we need to tell the diagnosis. It's important. But the question was, how do we do that? And who's going to actually pick up the piece after the clinician said, your daughter is autistic? And what does that mean later? And so we discussed this need of us clinician to, yes, um, develop clinical skills, not to miss them, not to be biased, to recognize the difference if there are any difference, but also how do we need to talk to parents? And that was one of the discussions. We're not only there to make a diagnosis, but also to help families to deal with this diagnosis and maybe the siblings and the grandparents. And I think that was something that the group was able to discuss. And I think that was probably in agreement, but it it creates some tension too. So do we need to be diagnosed? Do we need to be labeled and called autistic? Is that important for us as clinicians? And I think we kind of resolve the issue by explaining and detailing the reason why we needed to do that.
0: Marenike.
5: And if we don't have time for me to go into this too much, I'll, I'll try to just be brief. But I, one thing that I wanted to share quickly um, is that, um, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't even give you a chance to answer. Do we have time? <laughs> oh, we do.
0: Oh, yeah, okay, go okay. ahead. Go ahead. Please go ahead. Okay, sure. Um,
5: I was going to say that I think one thing that we, um, that that we, um, our paper, one, one important point was just the sheer heterogeneity of the spectrum that there are, you know, autism is, you know, has so many different you know, flavors and so many different um, aspects of it. And so all of those individual aspects, so even though there's some commonalities with certain, you know, f- you know co-occurring conditions or physical things, um, it was imp- it's important to kind of address um, the range and that's why it's really important to have like an individualized approach. So, you know, a person, you know, we had one member of the group who has an adult daughter who, um, in addition to um, being autistic has intellectual disability and some other challenges, and this is a, a group a part of the population that's often missed people miss the autism you know in you know either if someone is extremely verbal and seems to be quote-unquote you know camouflaging or masking or if someone has other um you know you know challenges and so those might you know almost kind of like people tend to to miss the autism because they're looking at everything else and so um we just wanted to kind of talk about the fact that people's needs and strengths and challenges fluctuate throughout life you Mm -hmm. know but it's like you know um but you know that's and so we need to look at the whole from a person being young to a person being older but that no you know one experience or one perspective or one term is appropriate for the entire group. You know, some people can be very fond of, you know, identity first language and find it very empowering, whereas someone else might prefer person first language and find that very empowering, you know, and it is something that originated from disabled people. So just really just, I guess, the fact that, you know, kind of like the, the cliche goes, if you've met one person on the spectrum, you've met one person on the spectrum, that is even more so the case, I think, when we're looking at this population.
0: That's a good point. And actually, when people have asked me what term they should use, I say you should ask. I haven't met one person that has said that they were offended by being asked what terminology they find most accepting or whatever their preference is. Um, was there anything else anyone kind of identified as a, a an area of? I know we can't. This isn't a vote, so don't worry. We're not <laughs> not at the polls, but a, uh, you know, anything
3: that people found particularly helpful, um, Maricela? Thank you, Alicia. I wanted to highlight a point made at front and center of the paper, which is that clinicians really need support from healthcare systems, professional societies, etc., cetera, um, to really do good clinical work. Um, so that's something I wanted to stress. And you know, following this paper, it seems we're in need of maybe a second work group to give practical recommendations for how clinicians can actually implement these recommendations in the context of the kinds of systems and settings that they work in. Um, but all in all, I think you know, something to highlight that maybe isn't specifically noted in the paper is that this recognition that there are serious service gaps following the evaluation experience. um and I think we, um, are all hoping that this paper helps clinicians, clinical groups, academic institutions reevaluate how clinical services are structured and what they are, in fact, offering to families. Um, for example, there there are a couple of groups out there that are starting to build in like family navigators into the evaluation process, which is a helpful model to start with, but we need more of this. Um, And so I hope that um, this paper not only offers some uh, beginning recommendations, but an opportunity to open up that conversation for how to shift the systems that we're working in.
0: Kristen, did you have something to add? Yeah, I would just add that when I think about
4: The role of professional societies. When I think about the role of clinician training, things like that, I do think it's going to take a lot of concerted effort. I think our paper is a start, Um, and then I think really getting um, that practical information out. So I'm I'm all for a second uh, or a third, I guess, round of working together. But when we think about how do we train clinicians, I really do think it comes down to teaching them how to think very um, broadly about autism and really truly understanding the differences between uh, typical development for all the different ages and all the different iterations of, of us as humans, and then also helping them to apply the diagnostic criteria. One of the things that I do, and many of you know this, is I train a lot of clinicians through echo autism, and it is very hard, very, very hard for clinicians, even very seasoned clinicians, to fully understand how to apply the behavioral context of autism across the broad spectrum. And it's so, and you can just see the bias over and over and over again of like, well, they can't possibly have autism because they have blah blah, blah, blah. And so I think again, if we can continue to really work hard as, experts in the field, clinicians, scientists, um, people with lived experience to continue to break down those, uh, misconceptions. I think that will help a lot. Um, and I definitely wholeheartedly support the idea of trying to broaden the role of clinical expertise in, um, in, in the evaluation of people with autism.
0: Did anybody else have anything to add on this, this, uh, this question?
1: sorry, I'm just going to jump in really late and and just highlight something again. I think a lot of our discussion was focused around gender diversity and autism. And I think that that's such an important point to highlight. I mean, even the terminology we used, I think we spent probably hours figuring out how we wanted to portray people that we wanted to help in this paper, right? And I think you know, for me, I, I got into this under- yeah. trying to understand biological sex or assigned sex at birth and brain differences. But as I've worked with the individuals and families in my study, and they've grown up, I see how much I have to really pay attention to gender diversity too. And I think that's a relatively new um, area that all of us are aware of, but it has such important impact. You know, I I think 20% of our kids in our longitudinal study are gender diverse. And that's not something we anticipated when we started this study. And it's something we have to pay attention to because the mental health outcomes, the supports they need are so critical. And so I think that's, for me, something that came out of this group that perhaps is something we should follow up on.
0: Yeah, I will say, so I I can't remember... um... I did do a podcast for people who listen to the podcast regularly, and I'll put the link to it. Um, I think in June about the issue of gender diversity and autism, and I think there is some work being done, probably by colleagues who are maybe on this paper, or colleagues of people that are on this paper, um, around potential instruments that can be used. Not, I think, I think not to pathologize gender diversity, but just to identify it as being a potential factor that needs support in individuals who are autistic, especially fem female, assigned females at birth. So I think, you know, again, we need to make sure that we're developing tools to help support, not necessarily um, pathologize, but they're really, you know, are kind of not really very specific tools right now, or uh, no, you know, a lack of good instruments to help better understand this intersectionality um, and then also to provide this really the, the the individualized support. And I think that's kind of the overall theme of the paper is that individualized perspective because things like context influence outcome, um, gender influence, you know, all these different things may influence outcome and they layer on each other. And so you know, thinking about what may work in one individual doesn't work in another individual, which I guess is also a lesson across genders. Morena did you want to add something?
5: Um, Yes, I just wanted to say that one thing I wanted to, another thing I wanted to point out is that um, I think the process that we use for our group and for putting our paper together is one that um, really does kind of you know, emphasize the importance of, you know, like taking a true participatory role. I'm making things cognitively accessible, breaking some things down, you know, I'm using tools that people can access in different ways. I'm letting us kind of have time to process things. I think all of those things are important. If someone is going to be involved, the voices of families, the voices of self-advocates, you know, um, are so forth are are important, but we we need to be welcome to be at the table. um, And there have to be ways to do that. And so that's something that I really like that, you know, Know, the, there wasn't a whole lot of medical jargon used you know and you know, things were explained um all of the different perspectives were valued and honored um we co-wrote things together and you know and didn't perceive okay person a has you know 17 degrees so therefore they are more their contribution is more valuable than person b you know that's not how we operated and i think that's an important point as well
0: i wanted just i know kristen has something to add but i wanted to give a shout out to the lancet who could not have been more supportive and then also flexible. We wanted to do those things like have boxes that explain things or break things down into smaller parts that may not always fit the standard, you know, scientific journal format. So they were very, very flexible um, and really were allowed us to do all those things. So I, I wanted to just thank them as well. Kristen?
4: Yeah, I was just going to um, add a little bit to what Marina Kay was saying. And, and I think being part of this group was really, frankly, very um, transformative for me. It was so good in the beginning, you know, in our beginning work, those difficult um, or even some of the they're just. We had to learn how to work together and hear each other, and it was so awesome, and I loved it. I think back on some of those moments where I was like, you know, because it's, it's it's some of these topics are hard, and trying to figure out how do we refer to people and how do we you know do it in the all of the different things. And I just want to say thank you to um, everyone because I learned so much from those conversations that I've applied to my clinical practices, to my life in general, just a better understanding of. How do you listen and you stay engaged? Yes, it, yeah, there were some dicey moments. I mean, I think we can all agree that there were some moments where we were like, whoo, that was heated, you know? And at the same time, it was so good. It was so good. And I think through that, I can at least say for myself, I grew a lot and I really, really value um this this group and how we came together like that. It was awesome.
0: I'm gonna direct this next question to Meng Chuan because he is a psychiatrist and sees a lot of females. So how do you hope this paper is used for the psychiatric community, for the pediatrician community? Kristen, this goes to you too. Um, what do you think the best use of this is?
7: Yeah, definitely sh- uh, share the, the, the group work with people that you think who should read it, like Christine suggested um, within the copyright allowed. <laughs> That's a difficult topic here. Uh, it is not an open access paper for whatever reason. Uh, But uh, I think there definitely are ways to get the copies. So feel free to email us uh, to get a copy of that or email Alicia. Uh, There's definitely are ways that we can share it widely. I think the content is as Christine said is a starting point for a lot of advocacy work and there could be also an, a, a, you know, a, a follow-up uh, effort like Marcel suggested that we might want to do something uh, to push forward to specific aspects so I think um, in the, in the broader communities who are who care about and who are supporting you know the autistic communities in general uh, hopefully you can benefit from these uh, perspectives to take things forward. I think you know we're thinking about this like a seeding, right? So we seed some ideas there, but it's really important that everyone takes that on board to move forward to your local initiatives and to enrich your personal clinical work, to to, to enrich your your caring of people uh, who are on the spectrum and families as well. So I think that there could be multiple ways, but uh, please read it and give us feedback. And we, we definitely would like to do more.
6: I just want to emphasize one point in case it wasn't clear that for someone like me, who's teaching, training, supervising very young clinicians, it's very important that they read this paper. The training is essential. We need to stop training these uh, clinicians as, you know, cookie cutter type of people. I see the ADOS. I think this child is autistic and and there's nothing else in their mind. I think this paper is really for training as well. Definitely the community (laughs) and and girls and women with autism, absolutely, but I think the young clinician shouldn't miss it.
0: It takes a whole lot of effort to train someone who's been doing things a certain way for many years versus someone who's new and eager to learn and um, is is kind of interested in doing things in a, in a different way.
6: I still hear parents and my colleagues saying, but it's a girl. Are you sure it yes. could be autism? No, it's a girl. I know mm-hmm. what's autism look like. This is not autism. And I think we really need to fight against you know, that kind of reaction. Because it's a reaction, it's not an intellectual thinking.
0: Well, on that note, I want to pull out a statistic that I, that I found from a paper in just last year um, that 50% um, of studies exclude females from their research. You can't just decide to exclude females. Um, So I hope that changes, but I think we have a problem here that females are not being included in, or AFAB are not being included in research. Morena Kay, you have the final word. Yes. Oh, I feel bad taking the final word. No, no, take (laughs) it, take it.
5: I was just going to share what like what Meng mentioned that um, I we this paper is currently available until early January for people to view, and then after that, because it's not open access, um, it's only for people who are, you know have a subscription or who pay to access it. Okay. And so that's one thing I'd love to see is some type of resources for community collaborations like this for these cross disciplinary collaborations. You know, to you know, it's a five thousand nine hundred eighty dollar article you know processing fee for us to make this available to the public, I think it's worth it. So if there's ways to talk about generating support so that more um, you know, more work like this can be reached, the people that it needs to reach, I think that's really important. I'd love to see something like that happen.
0: Well, thank you all for participating. Thank you all for taking time out to be a part of this. I know all of our lives are busy and I really appreciate and loved working with all of you and look forward to our next project together.
3: Thank you.